Welcome to The Current, a podcast series about digital transformation produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. I'm your host, Michael Copeland. We're sitting here south of San Francisco in San Mateo with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, who is the, what, head mad scientist? Your official title is? Uh, now I think I'm chief culinary advisor or something like that at, at Serious Seats. At, at Serious Seats. Yeah. And, and the author of um, The Food Lab, which is a book all about basically applying science and the scientific method so we can all be better cooks, or as the book says, unraveling the mysteries of home cooking through science. Right. Well, Kenji, welcome. Oh, thanks for, yeah, thanks. For, I was going to say thanks for having me, but I guess I'm having you right now. You're, <laughs> yeah, we're sitting you're in, in my dining room. Yeah, we're sitting so. in your dining room. Um, I want to know, the, the book and your column, The Food Lab, it's all about applying science and the scientific method mm -hmm. to cooking. Right. And how did you get there? I know you went to MIT and you, you, you were educated as an engineer, but is that because you have an engineer's mind and you want to apply science to everything? Um. I mean, to, to a big degree, yes. Um, I think, you know, I, I grew up in a family where science was heavily stressed. So my, my, both my grandfather and my father are scientists, um, and uh, my, my sister is a scientist as well now. Um, so, you know, sci science was a huge part of our education growing up, and it was always something that I was interested in. So, you know, I, w I was like the kind of kid who would want to take apart their toys so that they could <laughs> see how they work and then put them back together. And, and, you know, that, that sort of has carried through to what I do now. So, yeah, I, w I went to school um, originally for biology, actually, um, and then I switched to architecture. Um, structural engineering was my, was my concentration uh, about halfway through school and uh, finished with a degree in that. And then that sort of came to the realization that sort of doing lab science or working in an architecture firm is, um, just wasn't really the lifestyle I wanted. Um, and I think I, I had recently read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, and I'd read Michael Ruhlman's Making of a Chef, which are both books about working in kitchens, and that seemed like a sort of fun, I don't know, glamorous thing to do. Um, and, and you hadn't worked in a kitchen to that point? I, so I, I, my first kitchen job was the summer after my sophomore year in college, and it was a sort of a job that I accidentally fell into because I was actually, I was looking for I wanted to spend this summer doing non-academic things because I had spent a long time, um, several summers, working in labs and, and doing schoolwork during the summer. So I, I thought I'd take a break from that. Um, and so I went actually around looking for a job as a waiter. And just coincidentally, one of the restaurants I went into um, had a prep cook who hadn't didn't show up that day. And um, <laughs> so the, the manager asked me if I could if I would be willing to work that night in the kitchen. And so I said, sure. And then I spent the summer working in the kitchen. And then um, basically, w w you know, I, I loved it. Um, and, I, and I went straight from there. I continued to work part time uh, in, in kitchens my, the rest of my time in college. What, what did you love about it? I mean, prep cook, there's a lot of, you know, prepping, let's say. Yeah. And, and, and probably <laughs> as the low man on the totem pole, it wasn't like they gave you the glamour job. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess there was a few things. I mean, so, OK, so part of it was that I had been reading about working in kitchens and I was like, oh, this is this is, this is sort of like being a low rent rock star uh -huh. um you know well, i mean a lot of it is just so I, I do like the sort of day-to-day -day sort of what people might people might consider mundane tasks you know like I, I enjoy chopping onions and and peeling lemons and doing all those things um and sort of you know the, the kinds of things where you can see your skills improving on a, as you as you do them i you know i also i like the atmosphere of a kitchen sort of the the camaraderie and the idea that you're you're taking I don't know the the idea that you're transforming you're transforming something of little value into something of great value. You know, right. it's like I'm taking these raw ingredients that don't really cost that much, and then I'm doing some stuff with them with my hands and turning them into something that 
someone sort of on the other side of the kitchen door is paying a lot of money to eat. You know, right. and that's that's a kind of cool idea to me. You know, I've, I've I've always enjoyed doing things, doing things and building things um, and sort of making stuff. So, you know, like like now, you know, one of my big hobbies now is, is is woodworking. And I do like we're remodeling our house and most of the remodeling I'm doing myself. And it's it's because I have I just enjoy sort of building things and, and transforming them and making things. Um, so, so that's a lot of the cooking thing as well. Um, and then, and then of course the whole, you know, the, the whole idea of the hospitality industry where you're, where you're sort of nurturing people and providing them, um, providing for them and, and bringing joy to people. That's something I've always, uh, enjoyed doing as well. You know, the, the, in, in a kitchen, uh, when you're working in a restaurant, you're, you're doing that and you're sort of providing happiness to maybe, you know, maybe a hundred people a night. One of the great things about recipe writing, especially when, once you build up an audience and have a book and all this stuff, um, is that, you know, these days I feel like I'm, I'm actually providing joy to many more people than I, than I possibly right, could in right, a restaurant right, right. because, um, you know, I'm not cooking directly for them, but I'm helping them cook better and helping people, um, provide for their families better. Um, which I, you know, that's, that's one of the great, one of the reasons I really enjoy recipe writing now. Well, so you took, you packed up your knives from the restaurant kitchen and you went to first cooks illustrator or maybe not first, but that's, that's where, you know, I think a lot mm -hmm. of people know you from and then to serious eats yeah. recipe writing from the, from the outside and cookbooks, right? It, it sort of seems like it's somewhat of a dark art, but it's an art. And mm -hmm. then now you've taken it to sort of. You, there's clearly art involved, but you've also layered on top, or maybe the foundation even is science. Mm -hmm. And and why go that route? And and what took you? How did you? Why go that route? And how land? How did you land on that? And how did you know that it started to work for you? When I was in restaurants, um, you know, as, as I said, like I, I was one of those one of those kids who likes to know how things work. And so when I was in restaurants, um, one of the issues I had working in restaurants is that really it's 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 all about production and and about um, producing the same thing consistently over and over. And so there's not really that much room for sort of experimentation or why. You know, it, it, what you what you care about in a restaurant is is all you really care about is this this recipe or this technique works, um, and I can do it consistently. You don't really care about why it works so much. Mm -hmm. And for me, like I always wanted to know why, um, and so I would, you know, I would annoy my chefs by asking like, "Why are we doing it this way? Why don't we do it this way?" And usually the answer was like, "We're doing it this way because that's how we do it." Um, stop asking questions. And so, you know, I, as I was working, spent a number of years working in restaurants, I had these questions sort of building up um, that I always wanted to answer. Um, and, you know, and that and so when the opportunity to work for Cooks Illustrated came around, that seemed sort of like the perfect thing for me because, um, you know, the, the whole ethos of Cooks Illustrated is is using science to answer um, cooking questions. And, and you know, and, and you say like recipe writing um, and it, it seems sort of like a dark art. And, and in a lot of books, it is. It's like here, here's how you make this dish. If you make it this way, it'll it'll come out right but they don't really explain how they arrived at that particular technique right. um, and that and that's sort of one of the things that I, th I think cooks illustrated does well is that they say you know we arrived at this technique because we tried all these other things and found out this you know for this this and this reason that's why we're doing it this way and to me that approach just really makes sense when you when you started this approach of applying science to, to food and recipe writing, um, what were some of the questions that, that you wanted to have answered by science and food? And then once you had those answers, how did that allow you, to, to your point, to have this situational awareness and then move in different directions or make things better? The first recipe I was assigned at Cook's Illustrated when I started working there was we need a, like we haven't updated our steak recipe in however long, eight years, can you... Um, 
update it for us. And, it, and it's, at first it seemed like a pretty straightforward thing. It's like, all right, like I've cooked a million steaks in restaurants. Right. Here's how we do it. Like we put it in a pan, we sear the outside, then we throw it in the oven, fin- let it finish cooking, um, and it's done. That, like that's how you cook a steak. Um, but, you know, I was, I was pressed to find... You know, and and this is one of the, one of the for better or worse, this is one of the things that Cooks Illustrated does. It's like every story has to have like a kind of aha moment, you know. Uh-huh. And there there really has to be something um, that makes it interesting. We can't you can't just say this is how it's done. Um, and you know, and sometimes that ends up like sort of crowbarring, uh, <laughs> forcing you to crowbar like an unnecessary technique or something into it. But but in this case, what it did was it made me sort of reexamine this sort of accepted method of cooking steak um, and a lot of these sort of myths about cooking steak, um, like searing, locking in juices. Um, and uh, salting only at the end, things like that. Um, Wait, are you telling me that searing does not lock in juices? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, I think at this point everyone knows that searing doesn't lock in juices. But, okay. Um, but, um, but, you know, so, so in re-examining steak from the beginning, that um, took me down this path where we ended up sort of um, actually flipping that whole thing um, flipping the traditional me- method on its head. Um, so that, that's where I developed this method that I think now people refer to as the reverse sear, um, where instead of starting with a sear at the beginning and then finishing the oven, what you do is you start um, you start the steak in a low-temperature oven, let it come up to almost its final temperature, and then sear it at the very end just before serving. So so if you think about a steak, like you, th- what, what you want to do is you want um, the inside to be uh, at a relatively low temperature. 130 degrees Fahrenheit is, is medium rare. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want the outside to brown very well and browning doesn't occur until 300 400 degrees fahrenheit um and so how do you reconcile these two things like where you where you have like an extremely high temperature and a relatively low temperature all in the same piece of meat it turns out that if you do it the traditional way where you just put put a cold steak in a pan um there's so much moisture on the exterior of a steak that um it actually inhibits the browning for a, a significant period of time um so it takes much longer to brown a steak um when it when you pull it straight you know when 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 you start it raw in a pan um, as opposed to if you, as opposed to when you put it in the oven first, um, it cooks slowly and then the exterior kind of dries out, um, and so it becomes much easier to brown. So you spend less time in that very hot pan. You get the same amount of browning, but you spend less time in that pan, which means that less of the interior of the steak is overcooked. Oh, so you're not cooking the hell out of it. I yeah, see. exactly. So you get you get a sort of much more even, um, a much more even edge to edge, medium rare center than you would. Um, if you were to cook it the traditional way, anyhow, that was that was one of those things that that I think was really surprising to me and really surprising to readers. That made me realize maybe a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we sort of just accept is not actually the best way to do things, um, and and is, you know and might be based on outdated methods or out, outdated thinking. So you've already slayed the sacred cow of uh, searing a steak. Clearly, you set on this path of like okay. Maybe none of these techniques are sort of the right way to do it, or or maybe it wasn't none of them. But but did you start to think like, okay, well, what else can I see if there's a better way to do it? The first thing I do when I start working on a recipe um, is I do sort of uh, historical and cultural research on it. You know, um, I, I want to make sure that I understand the the place of a certain dish in a certain culture, both you know, both in a historical context and a, and, in a, and in a cultural context. And then I sort of sit down and give myself a list of parameters. It's like what does this dish need to accomplish? What does it need to taste like? What does it need to look like? Um, uh, what equipment is it okay for me to use? What ingredients is it okay for me to use? All, all you know. So I come up with a sort of list of all these things that I like a, a, a frame a framework for me to work to work in, um, and and then I get down to testing. I would say you know ninety percent of the time the recipe I come with, up with at the end um, does follow some you know some form of traditional technique. Um, mm-hmm. You know m- maybe I'll be pulling in techniques from other cultures a little bit um, or. Um, you know, b- because now we have access to all these 
with, with the internet, like it's very easy to find influences and, 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 um, and instructions and techniques from all over the world. Um, and so it kind of just naturally comes where, you know, I might introduce a technique from one part of the world to a recipe from another part of the world just because I think it makes sense. But it's not that frequent that you end up um, some, somewhere like that where you're completely upending a traditional technique. Um, I think the reason why maybe a lot of people think that's what I do frequently is because those stories are always more interesting. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, it's, it's, you know, the, the primary goal is come up with a, a good recipe and explain how you got there. If it turns out that that recipe also upends some traditional thing, then that makes it, that makes it a much more exciting right. story, obviously. So people end up reading those more frequently. The Current is produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. Let's talk about food tech. Uh, we sit here in Silicon Valley and there's there's been a lot of investment uh, in the food tech space yeah. ranging from, Around you know, kind of, yeah. you know, meat substitutes and certainly food delivery services mm -hmm. and kind of logistics side of things. Is food tech for you an oxymoron? Is it is it part of our future? Is it part of our present? I mean, how do you view it? I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely part of our present and future. I mean, I think so. Right now, I think you know the things that are the things that are getting popular are well, obviously sous vide cooking, you know, pre precision cooking in general. The, so the next generation of ovens that are coming out um, are, I think, are going to allow people to cook sort of sous vide style without the actual sous vide part. So without the plastic bags and without the water bath, um, but merely with an oven that holds a very precise temperature and holds a precise humidity level. You know, this, this is the kind of stuff that is in restaurants already. Um, CVAP ovens are, you know, right. popular in restaurants. Um, they're wonderful because they allow you to very precisely um, cook a piece of meat and also to hold it um, until you're ready to serve it. And CVAP just it, it introduces steam or something? It, so a CVAP oven, it's, I mean, that's a brand name, but but yeah, right. it's, a, it's a steam oven that, so it, it allows you to hold um, a precise humidity level and also very precise temperature. So my oven right now, like, and most home cooks ovens, like if I set it to 350 degrees, it doesn't actually stay at 350 degrees. It, right. it wavers up and down. You know, there's there's a way, it, it has a thermostat in there, so it'll, it'll get up to 350 degrees, but it takes a while for those heating elements to cool down, so maybe it'll jump up to 375 by the time the heating elements cool down and then it'll start to cool down uh, and it'll be down to say 325 before the thermostat kicks back in. Um, so it, it, it kind of waves up and down around 350 degrees. So not very precise. Curious is that because um, for the same reason that our smartphones do everything? Is, is it because sensors and kind of like the software and the algorithms behind it, we can do lots yeah, of sen control? Yeah, sen sensors and microprocessors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to a purely mechanical. Just I mean, it's on, it's off. Exactly, you know, exactly. You know. Are there... Um, um, food tech kind of trends that you are either excited by or worried by or somewhere in the middle? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by the whole fake meat sector right now, which uh -huh. is, has, uh, has a ton of money going into it and has sort of, I think, progressed in leaps and bounds in the last and couple of years. And by fake meat, do you mean the, the vegetable kind or the meat that's grown both, in both, yeah. petri dishes or I, I, So I haven't, I haven't had a chance to try any of the, any of the petri dish meat yet. Uh -huh. Um, the actual, you know, the actual meat that's grown on, not on animals, but you know, there, there's a company just a few miles down the peninsula that's doing that right now. But, but even on the vegetable side, there's, uh, you know, the Im Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger are two companies that are, that I think of done some really cool stuff um and you know the, I, i've tasted both of them um and you know at, at this point it's at it's at the point where i think they don't really fool someone who who eats meat all the time um but if you're like a vegan or a vegetarian or you know who who is sworn off meat for maybe ethical reasons or environmental reasons and you haven't eaten meat in a few years if you taste like an impossible burger you're like oh yeah that's 
That's, that's what I remember a hamburger being. That's what I um, hear. But you know, it's it's. I think it's it, it's it's a sector that I think is inevitably going to grow because it, it, you know there's 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 going to be a ton of pressure for us um, to to stop eating as much meat. Um, environment. I mean, mainly environmental pressure. You know, it it takes an enormous amount of resources to make meat, and the demand for meat is not going down. So we we're either going to have to figure out a way to be even crueler to our animals or come up with a, with another solution. And I, I definitely think uh, either lab-grown meat or, you know, a plant-based meat um, meat, sort, meat substitute is, is going to be part of that solution. I'm looking in your kitchen right now and I see a Vitamix and a microwave and, you know, a stove and a kitchen. And I know you have a closet filled with, with other gadgets like, you know, sous vide circulators yeah. and, and induction <laughs> burners and things like that. For most cooks, are there are there things that we should, you know, we don't have to walk into the kitchen with a lab coat and a, you know, a pH monitor, do we? Right. I mean, like, what sh- what do you recommend how people think about what they need for a good kitchen and how they should think about cooking in the way that you do cooking? I mean, so the the important thing to remember is that every you know every tool is just is just a tool. You know, it it, it, it it's it's not um a tool, tools are a means to an end, um and they're not they're not the end in themselves. And and you know, and I think a lot of people sort of fall into this trap, um where they they get the new device, they get they get the sous vide device, and then they're like, how do I make sous vide? chocolate chip cookies how to make sous vide pizza and it's like <laughs> i'm gonna do it you don't yeah. you don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know um it, it is really just like, sort of like a lot of it is just sort of like a hammer looking for a nail a nail issue um so you know i think don't don't get into this idea that any new piece of equipment is going to be the is going to be the magic bullet that's going to suddenly make you a better cook um i could tell you that if you know if i was to go live in like if, if i was to go uh say um, live in a galley kitchen on a boat. The, the pieces of equipment I would take with me are a mortar and pestle, which I think is, is like one of the most ancient pretty, pieces of equipment. analog right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, incredibly versatile and useful tool. Mortar and pestle. Well, I would, wait, hold on. I use a mortar and pestle to smash garlic and then grind up herbs, but mm-hmm. what else? Make, make spice paste, make, um, make dressings. And it... it, it Basically, anything you would do in a food processor, uh-huh. um, not, I mean, not anything, but most things you would do in a food processor will right. come out better in a mortar and pestle. So in a food processor, what you're doing is you're, you're chopping and you're shearing. In a mortar and pestle, you're crushing. Right. And so a mortar and pestle actually releases a lot more flavor than a food processor does or, or than chopping by hand does. Okay, so, so mortar and pestle, you're on yes. a boat, you got a mortar and pestle. Uh, I would bring a, a wok. A lot. Um, just because it's an extremely versatile um, tool, you know, especially if you, if you make a lot of sort of fast meals for for you know two to four people, it's it, it's you know it goes well beyond stir fries. Like it's the best vessel for it's the best vessel for deep frying. It's great for steaming. Um, it's great for braising. Like it's it's just a super versatile pan. Mortar and pestle wok. Um, I would say a immersion blender, like a hand blender, um, which I find to be a lot more useful than a than a than a countertop blender. And I don't know, knife and a cutting board. Those those are the tools I use. Fishing pole? Fishing pole, yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> Checking. One of those little, I think, those collapsible Tenkara rods. <laughs> there you go. Kenji, I want to ask you this. It's all about expressing yourself through food and, and putting good meals in front of people who you want around you. It sounds right. like. Where does science kind of, you know, when do you take the lab coat off and, you know, and, and how do you think about that? Where does science well, kind of... I mean, fade into the background. I, so I don't, I don't, I don't consider science and um, science and culture or family or whatever, whatever. I don't know what you want to call it. Heart, like heart, soul, whatever. I don't consider science to be sort of a, a dichotomy with those things. They're sort of, they're sort of orthogonal lines. Um, and so, 
you don't necessarily have to take science out of anything. You know, science science is really just a it's a method of looking at things, right? Mm -hmm. And and a method and a and a method of explaining how things work and figuring out how things work. Um, and and I, I don't think you necessarily have to remove it anywhere. So food tastes good partly because it, it, it triggers our senses in certain ways, like our, our tongues, our, our our nose, our eyes, our ears. But but really, you know, the, the sensation of taste is something that we're creating in our in our brains. You know, it's it's not just taking the sensory input that we have. It's also taking past experiences, um, whether they're whether they're um, cultural, you know, fam family experiences, or whether they're our knowledge of the history of something. Um, you know, the reason we we think t things taste good is not just based on the sensory input that's coming from our tongues and. Mm -hmm. Noses. In some cases, the, 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 those reasons that things taste good are because um, you know maybe maybe it's a dish that my mother made a lot when I was a kid. Maybe it's something I had that I tasted while I was on a vacation with my wife in Europe, and and it and it reminds me of this particular place where we were. Um, and so so you know that story is what makes something taste good. Um, but you know science has its own story as well. You know so so um, depending on what kind of personality you have and what what kind of things you're interested in, you know you could say this dish tastes great because I know the science behind it. You know I, I know that like I did right. this this and this to the steak. Um, and I can taste all those, all those little, all those little pathways I chose to get to this final point. Like I can taste it in the end result, and that's super interesting in and of itself. Or, or for some people, you know, like lab-grown meat maybe tastes exciting and interesting to them specifically because they know that it's lab-grown meat. You know, you're uh, working on the next volume of your book, The Food Lab. Mm -hmm. um, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's going to be the Food Lab Volume Two because, uh, well, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't get to in in the first one, and and actually at the rate it's going right now, I, um, I'm having a meeting with my publisher next week, but I think I'm actually currently working on volumes two and three um, because it's going to be like the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. It's a it's a trilogy. Because I, I, like um, I yeah, I started writing it, and it's sort of the same thing that happened. You know, when I was working on the first book, originally I was supposed to write a 350 page thing, and it got longer and longer and longer because I just found out there's more stuff to say. Yeah. Um, and so the draft I turned in was actually 1,200 pages that we cut down to sort of 950. So I had that extra material. I was like, okay, well maybe I can turn this extra 300 pages into volume two. And sort of the same thing happened. So, um, so uh, what originally was going to be like a seven chapter addition to Food Lab, to the original Food Lab, uh, is now up to 17 chapters. So my publishers are saying, if we want people to be able to carry this book, we're going to have to, <laughs> we're going to have to cut it down. So uh, right now I'm sort of in the creative editing process, yeah, <laughs> of trying to figure out what absolutely needs to stay and what can be um, held off for the third volume. Um, so I can tell you volume two is mainly is going to focus a lot on uh, non-American techniques. So the first volume was a lot of macaroni and cheese, meatloaf, you know, things in the American repertoire. Um, the second volume is going to be a lot more focused on um, dishes that American cooks are familiar with, but come from other other cuisines and techniques mm -hmm. that come from other cuisines. So um, a lot of Asian, a lot of South American, Central American, um, some, some Central European, things like that. And then... Um, Volume three is is going to probably be sort of a vegetarian, vegetable-focused book. So maybe, maybe not 100% vegetarian, but mainly vegetables, uh, a lot of vegan, vegetarian stuff with um, uh, So, yeah, that, that's that's the current plan. But wow, that's those things trilogy. may shift around. I, mean, I look yeah. forward to it. Um, uh, the first book was great, I have to say. So Thanks. look forward to the next two. What are you having for dinner? Oh, today I'm photographing things for the second book. So I'm making uh, – there's Pad C.U., there's um, Cantonese-style uh, salt and pepper shrimp. Um, there's uh, Chinese-American um, uh, crispy orange beef. And what else? Oh, and um, Bucatini um, alla Grisia. So okay, so we'll be back. Uh, <laughs> a few hours. Six-ish, yeah. seven, if that's okay. Jay Kenji lopez thank you so much. Uh, thanks. Thanks for listening to The Current. 
a podcast series about digital transformation produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. Let Dell Technologies Cloud Solutions, powered by Intel, show you the power of digital transformation. Intel inside, powerful productivity outside.